This is Super Investors in the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! John Templeton. Buy low, sell high. Fear, that's the other guy's problem. Dan Druckenmiller. George Soros. Paul the Jones. Peter Lynch. You wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. My guest for this episode is Tom McClellan. You might recognize his last name as his parents were the inventors of the McClellan Oscillator and Summation Index, two of the most valuable technical indicators I've ever come across. But Tom is also a terrific technical analyst in his own right, carrying the torch that his parents first lit back in the 1960s. He's actually come up with some of the most creative and effective stock market models I've ever seen. So I was really humbled when Tom invited me up to Seattle to speak to the Puget Sound chapter of the Market Technicians Association. Um, I used the opportunity to to sit down with him and really pick his brain on how these indicators were created in the first place and how he really integrates them into his trading process. At the end of the day, Tom's really one of the most thoughtful and open-minded technicians I've ever come across, but I'll leave you to decide that for yourself. Uh, please enjoy my conversation with Tom McClellan. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. It's really a pleasure for me to be able to pick your brain like this and have the chance to to chat about some of the uh, indicators and whatnot that you've come up with in, in over the years. Well, and thanks for coming to Seattle. I, we threw on some good weather for you. I, t- I try to tell people if you're planning to come to the Pacific Northwest then uh, you should know that the rainy season begins around October 1st and it ends September 30th. So you want to work around those days. Yeah, I know this is my first trip to Seattle and it's beautiful. I'm getting the, the wrong don't, idea. Don't right? tell everybody. <laughs> you know, I, so I, I, I live in the Pacific Northwest too, but Bend, Oregon is high desert. I'm, I'm on the other side of the mountains in the rain shadow. So I'm a little bit more spoiled in terms of weather. So, uh, but yeah, this is beautiful. Thanks for uh, arranging the weather. You went, uh, I think we chatted before that uh, you actually went to school at West Point. I did. I don't imagine they have a finance degree at West Point. Well, it's a broad-based education then and now. They want to have well-rounded graduates, and so we had Econ 201, uh, early Econ 101, but it had a two in front of it because it was was sophomore year, and they taught you all about utils and supply and demand curves, and so I learned it that way, and I thought, well, this is a bunch of crap. But because it didn't make any sense and didn't give me any real answers, but I got through the semester course and, and went to study things that made sense. I was an aerospace engineering major, and the great thing about engineering is that there's an equal sign, and everything on the left side of the equal sign equals whatever's on the right side. And so, you, so you know, if you're not equaling out, you got to go back and look at the formula and find out where the, the missing error is. It, there's, it's very elegant. It's always true. It always works, except when things break, and then you know why they broke because you overstressed it or whatever. But you know, engineering made sense to me. The fuzzy sciences like psychology and economics didn't make as much sense to me, and so I stayed away from those. Well, you know, that makes that makes a lot of sense to me to hear you say that because a lot of, you know, the research of yours that I've read sounds like it's very evidence-based and and uh and and mathematic in its in its uh, approach. So, well, and I'll um, look at anything if you, if I could believe and figure out a way to look at woolly caterpillars and figure out the stock market from them and if I could test it and show that it works, then I, okay, fine. Uh but I try to look generally in areas that are more fruitful for 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 exploration. Yeah. So, well, how did you go from uh, you know, the uh, the academy to 
um, a career in finance? Um, got out in 1982, graduated then, and, and went off to study tanks at Fort Knox, and then went to flight school at Fort Rucker, Alabama, and uh, learned how to speak Southern. And yeah. <laughs> had some great barbecue down in Alabama. Not putting down anybody else's barbecue, but it was pretty good. Uh, flew helicopters in the Army for 11 years, including four years in Germany. Uh, we were there in Germany when the wall came down, which was a fascinating bit of history to, to live through and be part of. We had, in fact, been to Berlin in 1988, my wife and I, before kids came along, and we'd seen what the divided Berlin looked like. We had to wear our Class B Army uniform because that was what the rules were, and we went over to the east side and spent money uh, stingily and, and bought all kinds of stuff because the weird exchange rates that they had going on. Got our picture taken by the little guy, spy guy take, as we were passing back through Checkpoint Charlie. So we knew what Berlin was like, so it was a very, very big shock, November of 89, I happened to be back in the States, still stationed in Germany, but I was back in the States visiting to find out what my next assignment was going to be in November of 89, and I was staying at my aunt's house in Annandale, Virginia. I went to outside to pick up her copy of the Washington Post off her front porch, and here on the Washington Post is a picture of people dancing on the Berlin Wall, and my brain said, no, no, you cannot do that. This is not real. I, right. I, my brain couldn't process the image that I was seeing, but it was, it was a wild time to be there. Uh, got out in 1993 when uh, smart people came to Washington, D.C., and they figured out we weren't going to have wars anymore. So we didn't need this big army, so let's let everybody go. So I was part of the Peace Dividend who left the Defense Department and went off to work and earn a living and contribute to GDP and all those things. And uh, uh, when I was growing up, my parents had been involved with uh, with analyzing the stock market, and they created the McClellan Oscillator that and the McClellan Summation Index that became famous. They did that back in 1969, wrote their book in 1970, but you have to understand, this is before computers, this is before even handheld calculators. So all the calculations were done on scratch paper, all the postings on paper charts were done by hand, so it was a, a really different time. And, yeah. uh, but I didn't want anything to do with, with what my parents were doing, because I was, I was a teenager and I knew everything. It was only <laughs> when I got older that my parents got a lot smarter. Yeah, so it's, yeah, that's how it works for, for all of us. Um, so it was really the uh, the family business to to some you know degree. Um, I think I read uh, on your site that your parents started tracking the uh, the oscillator um, by when they got a subscription to Barron's. Was that right? Or or um, and, and tracking it by hand. Right, like you said, there weren't any computers. But, any, so. Anybody who was tracking advanced decline statistics back then was tracking it by hand on on, on ledgers and and. and Graph paper. They got inspired to look at advanced decline statistics by a newsletter that was published at the time called Trade Levels, the Trade Levels Report, uh, published by a guy named Pete Harlan, who was an actual rocket scientist at Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena, who in his spare time liked to dabble in the stock market. And so because he had access to a computer, an IBM card-fed, big, gigantic, room-sized computer that uh, they used for tracking satellites and things, he... I started inputting data onto IBM cards and went getting onto the computer at 3 o'clock in the morning when there was time available and starting tracking the, the stock market that way. And he was a big fan in the 60s of advanced decline statistics because uh, back in 1962, Joe Granville and Richard Russell, some famous names, they had pointed out how a big divergence between the New York Stock Exchange advanced decline line and the Dow Jones Industrial Average had, had foretold the big bear market of 1962. It was a 27% decline. So suddenly people were thinking, wow, there's something that could have told us about that? We ought to pay attention to that. And uh, <clears throat> my parents were among those who were 
suddenly interested in the advanced decline statistics. So they started playing with it themselves and looking at the exponential moving averages that Harlan introduced to the world for tracking stock market prices. Nobody else had done it before he introduced it to, to everyone. <clears throat> and they looked at the single moving averages uh, one at a time. But then the, lightning, the, the, the light bulb moment came. I'm not sure if it was my dad or my mom. They wondered, what about the difference between the two moving averages? And that was what became the known as the McClellan Oscillator, and which was the, the real pearl that they found in, in looking at these data. Okay, so that's, you know, the, yeah, the McClellan Oscillator and the um, summation index are the two that I, I look at and have known about for, gosh, since I started looking at, you know, technical studies. Can you tell, tell me a little bit about, um, you know, how they use them, how you use them, you know, how, how they're intended to be used? What they are is they, they measure the acceleration that is taking place in the advanced decline line. So if, if you imagine that every day for three months we had 200 more advancing issues than declining issues, you'd, then you'd see the advanced decline line going up in a, in a straight line with a uniform slope. There would be no acceleration. There would, be, there would be a rise, but it wouldn't be accelerating upward. It would just be steadily rising. Uh, but... The market doesn't work that way, so it accelerates upward and then it accelerates downward, and so how you look at what how that acceleration is taking place uh, gives you information about what's underlying the market. If, you, if you're a deep math nerd, you can think of the McClellan Oscillator as the second derivative of the slope of the advanced decline line. Gotcha. So it's really like a momentum indicator of the internals in, in the stock market. Exactly. And it's looking at something other than price, but which is tied to prices, sort of. You know, if if you only looked at price, you'll only ever get one answer. The whole reason that you hire the advanced decline line to go to work for you is to give you a different answer sometimes and to hopefully have it, that different answer be a useful answer. So that's why it's, it's a useful thing. If you see price and advanced decline data doing the same thing, okay, that's fine. But when you see them doing something different, then you start to pay attention. So is that what you mainly look for? Is the, uh, the oscillator to confirm you know, price action? either to confirm or to refute it. Right. Uh, one way or the other, we want to have it tell us what's really happening. And the people, you know, people talk about the advanced decline statistics being problematic because they're not really priced. But, but the nice thing about them is you can't really manipulate the entire market. You can manipulate the prices of some things, but you can't manipulate all 3,100 stocks on the NYC. There, nobody has that much power. And every day... There's a battle between the bulls and the bears on every one of those individual issues. And so when you sum up the, the forces of all those battles taking place on all those issues, sometimes you get a different answer than just looking at the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Well, this, yeah, and this actually brings up a question I was going to ask you later, but I think it leads right into it. There's something I've been you know, thinking about with this huge push to passive investing that we've seen in recent years. I mean, it's trillion, over a trillion dollars in flows from out of active and almost two trillion into passive over the last decade. How does that uh, affect? I mean, I never like to rationalize an indicator, but um, you know, if we're looking for potential divergence in the advanced decline line to indicate a weakness in the overall market, but the money that's flowing into the stock market is flowing into everything equally because it's mostly flowing into passive products. Does that does that change the value of the advanced decline line? That's a really good question, and. Before we can talk about the answer to your specific question, I'm going to have to adjust everyone in the audience's thinking about money and the stock market. 
people think about, well, how much money is in the stock market? The answer is zero. There is zero money in the stock market. If you put money into it, it immediately comes out the other side into somebody else's pocket. Right. There's, no, there's no, never been a share bought that wasn't also sold. And so if, 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 when you hear these lines on TV like, oh, there were more buyers than sellers. Well, no, there weren't. There were right. exactly right. the same number of shares they bought and sold. They have to match up. They have know, to match up. Yeah. And so the, what the beauty is for analyzing the overall stock market is that there are only two fundamentals that matter. You can forget about, for, in terms of individual stocks, company-specific things really matter a lot. But for the overall market, forget book value, forget dividend yield, forget all that other stuff. The only two fundamentals that matter are, number one, how much money is there? And number two, how much does that money want to be invested? If you change either one of those things, you move the market. So we look at liquidity measures that to address, number one, about how much money is there. We don't care about the grand total numerical value but we care about whether that's moving. And we look at sentiment indicators that tell us about what's changing with the way that people care about stuff. And, and those two give us a real good indication. The, re the reason why breadth statistics and advanced decline statistics are so important is that when liquidity starts to dry up, it affects the lesser stocks first. I think of a, I think of a pig farm. You have a big sow. She just had a litter of 13 pigs. If she's a really good sow, a good mother, and she's producing lots of milk, they're all going to grow, and they're all going to be fine. If she's not a very good milk producer, the runts are going to get pushed away. The big piggies will get their share. They'll muscle their, their way in so the fang stocks can get all the, all the milk that they want, but the runts will, will go hungry. And so when you look at a pig, at the mother pig, you can judge her not by the health of the biggest of the, of the piggies, look at the runts, and that will tell you what's happening with liquidity in terms of being delivered to the market. Yeah, that's, and that's a great point. And it's, and it's fascinating to me because uh, I was just talking with um, Steve Bregman about this the other day. Um, he runs a firm called Horizon Kinetics and has done a lot of research into the passive uh, phenomenon and, and how it's actually been creating distortions in the financial markets. And he, you know, looks specifically at the bond market and finds that, you know, passive money flowing into um, specifically emerging market bonds has allowed a country like Lebanon, essentially, you know, 7%, uh, you know, uh, bond on their sovereign bonds to trade to a 5% yield. And it's simply because they're one of the larger issuers compared to the size of their economy and money's flowing into passive. So the demand for Lebanese bonds is kind of off the charts. Um, and they haven't, I mean, to, to put this in perspective, he, you know, he brings to the point, they haven't even released a GDP figure in the last 10 years. <laughs> and people are willing to loan the money, you know, for at, at a 5% yield. So, you know, when the money flows into these passive products, it's just amazing that you would think if there's a run to an emerging market high yield, maybe it's Lebanon, you know. Um, but this is but not a new phenomenon. It right. just happens to be happening in certain ways right now in 2017. In 2008, people saw that the, the housing bubble had had run its course and stock markets had run their course. So everybody got all excited about commodity index fund investing. All the hedge funds were doing commodity index, importing money uniformly into a basket of commodities. And so suddenly, iron ore and rice prices were correlated, which they have no business being correlated. But when you start pouring money into these baskets uniformly, like you're talking about, suddenly correlations go to one. So, I, yeah, I would say, so I take your point. So you're saying that um, this is just another momentum trade. And when that momentum starts waning, it will show up in the advanced decline statistics. Well, um, the momentum in terms of flows into these products. Yes, but the 
the flows into those products will start to dry up after liquidity starts to become constrained. And we're not seeing signs of that right now, because right now today, the advanced decline line is at a new all-time high. We're not seeing a big divergence. You can still have an ordinary garden variety market correction of a few percentage points anytime, but you don't get the really big drawdowns without a divergence in the advanced decline line. A study we did going back years said if you're at a new three-year high for the advanced decline line, what's the max drawdown you're going to see? And generally, it's 10% or less. There's two exceptions to that, though, recently. One was after QE1 stopped, mm-hmm. and the other was after QE2 stopped. So when you suddenly yank away the liquidity punch bowl rapidly without any kind of warning or without any kind of taper, then you get these wild liquidity swings. The Fed got smart with QE3, and they said, we're going to pull the punch bowl back slowly. We're going to taper and uh, didn't cause the same sort of disruptions. Right. Right. That's that's fascinating, the correlation. Now, you know, this brings up another topic, too, is that, you know, I've, I've talked with a few other folks about, um, you know, the central bank policies, extreme experimental policies, and um, the the effects they have on markets and, and the business cycle. And I, and I think you have talked about, um, you know, discretionary Fed policy versus a systematic policy of just following the two-year Treasury yield. Yep. And and so do you believe that we should literally just take it out of the hands of the FOMC and put it, you know, just say the Fed funds rate should match the two-year yield? And If they would do that, and they won't, but if they did, they would have a lot less of disruption of the financial markets, both in terms of overstimulating and being overly restrictive. The, the best example was 2004. Finally, Greenspan started allowing interest rates to rise to catch up to this booming economy, uh, but he didn't want to let it catch up too fast because he was worried about his legacy. <clears throat> the two-year note yield was way up above where the Fed funds target was, and as a result, we got a huge housing bubble stimulated because interest rates were so low, people were borrowing money like crazy and condo flipping and having all sorts of exogenous things that don't make any sense when when liquidity is not so plentiful, but they suddenly make sense when the Fed's got its thumb on the scale. And then Bernanke took office in 2005. He kept the party going. And to his credit, he, he dropped rates faster than any Fed president ever, uh, Fed chairman ever had done, but it still wasn't fast enough to catch up to where the bond market was going. If they'd had just pegged the Fed funds target rate to the two-year note yield and f- dropped it even faster, then we wouldn't have had as much carnage in 2008 as we had. And, and that's a good point. And then subsequent to that, right, we had uh, seven years of 0% interest yeah. rate policy. And the two-year note yield was not at zero. Right. And we've had all sorts of stimulus. And we've had a great bull market since 2009 in the stock market because going back to fundamental factor number one, how much money is there? The Fed has changed that number, and that's why stock prices have been lifted so much. Whether they should be lifted or not, we're not going to get into should. We'll get into that in another discussion. But that's the fact that it has happened that way because of the Fed offering so much extra money to the banking system. Yeah. You know, I, I, um, I want to um, – I, I think these macro discussions are, are fascinating, and, and, uh, and I, I don't think there are many people that would disagree with the idea that the Fed has been a little too easy over the last seven, eight years, um, other than economists you know, <laughs> who believe that they haven't done enough. Uh, but I want to get a little bit more into your process. You're talking about, you know, liquidity and sentiment, you know, driving market prices. Um, you've come up with a number of, uh, you know, cr- very creative um, indicators. Uh, what are what are some of the main 
the main ones that you use uh, that kind of underlie your process? Well, uh, before we get into all the fancy indicators, I'm going to I'm going to tell people about what I call the Steve Todd test. Steve Todd writes the, the Todd Market Forecast. Uh, down in uh, Crestline, California. Been, uh, he was on Channel 22 in L.A. same time we were uh, and get, get becoming known on financial television way back then. Great guy and has a deep southern accent because he's from Alabama. And he people asked him, what's his favorite indicator? And he, he said, you know, there's a lot of great indicators and I like to look at them all, but when it really comes down to it, I really like to strip them all away, just look at a plain old bar chart and ask the chart one question, is you is or is you ain't in an uptrend? That's the Steve Todd test. <laughs> That's perfect. Right, yeah. <laughs> That's the first thing to know is, are you in an uptrend or not? Right. Then, the, yeah. then you can get to the question of, is that trend likely to change? But identifying the trend is really important. And we're in a bull market right now. Uh, we should be because all the money that's getting printed. We are because we're seeing the advanced decline line making new all-time highs. We're seeing prices make new all-time highs. Uh, making new highs in a price chart is one of the most bullish things that that a price chart could ever do. It's only the last new high that's the bearish one. And right. along the way, you'll see a bunch of new highs along the way to that last one that are all bullish ones that you should believe in. Yeah. So higher highs, higher lows. You that, know, definition of an uptrend. That makes a little, yeah. But we look at advanced decline statistics a lot because they give us answers that we can't really get anywhere else. They tell us about how those rents are doing because everybody gets an, a, the same vote. Everybody in the, uh, every stock or every issue on the New York Stock Exchange, because there are things that are not really stocks, they all get the same vote. It's an egalitarian indicator. And so you'll see when the, the poorer stocks, when the less deserving stocks are starting to suffer, all of their votes will count a whole lot, and you'll see a difference in the behavior in the advanced decline line. Gotcha. Now, into you know, aside from the you know paying attention to the trend, and you know that's one of my favorite quotes. I think is you know Paul Tudor Jones is uh, you know, uh, and I'm going to bungle the quote, but he said something like you know the the reason why so many fundamental investors have been crushed in the past ten years, twenty years during these bear markets is because they just don't know how to, you know, read a trend and, and paying attention to the trend is incredibly important. So I, yeah, I agree with that completely. Um, but you've come up with some, some real creative, um, indicators that you look at. Uh, one of them is Euro dollar commercial, um, traders, uh, you know, in the, uh, Euro dollar, uh, futures market. Um, you know, uh, is that, is that a key one that you pay attention to? It's not the Holy grail, but it's close. Yeah. It's uh, to explain what Jesse just said. We're looking at commitment of traders data published by the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. They're the CFTC. They pub publish the COT report, the COT report every Friday. Tells how groups of traders are positioned: either the commercials, which are the big money and the smart money, or the non-commercials, which are the hedge funds, or the non-reportables, which are the nickel and dime futures traders that are so small they're not even worth bothering to report. Paying attention to what the commercials are doing is usually the right way to go. They're usually they usually end up being right. When we're talking about euro dollars, this is not the euro versus the dollar in the currency markets. This is the old term that predates the euro currency, known as euro dollars, which refers to dollar-denominated time deposits in European banks. So a euro dollar futures contract is really an interest rate product. People get that confused, and I don't I don't want to let anybody get wrong in thinking that we're talking about currencies. Euro, right, yeah. We're talking about the euro dollars, which are, think of the LIBOR. Well, you know, and, and that's an interesting way to think about liquidity. You mentioned earlier liquidity is a really, you know, important thing to watch. Um, and, you know, this is liquidity that the Fed doesn't necessarily have control of because it's, you know, kind of 
dollar liquidity overseas. And so there's different dynamics that, you know, are, are behind this. Right. And, and so, so these commercial traders of the euro dollar fishers, they're the big banks who are laying off their interest rate risk from depositors and from, and from <clears throat> loans they've made by putting that in the futures market so they can de-risk it and hedge that. So the way that they change that hedging that they're doing uh, by going more long or less long or going short, that tells you about the pressures that they're sensing from the liquidity that's within the banking system. But the really fascinating thing is that if you take the net position of the commercial traders of euro dollar futures, shift it forward on a chart by a year, it'll give you a roadmap of what the stock market is going to do. Why a year? I don't know. But it's only been working for about the last 20 years. And after, after some point, if, if, when you've seen enough evidence that it's working, you start to accept it. Well, you know, at 20 years, too, is, you know, you look at the process of, um, you know, globalization and how big that euro dollar market has become over 20 years. It's become much more of a factor, you know, uh, uh, for liquidity in the markets sure. probably over 20 years than, the, than it was before that. The, the three-month euro dollar futures contract has the most total open interest of any futures contract that's traded in the United States. So it's a huge thing. And it didn't work, this relationship didn't work before about 1997. Uh, and before that point, there weren't really the big open interest in Eurodollar futures. It was, a, it was a very small traded thing. So it wasn't really measuring the, the, the dynamic push and pull of all the forces among all the bankers. Once they started embracing it as their hedging instrument, then it started giving out the great answers in about 1997. Yeah. You know, and, and you mentioned, you know, shifting forward euro dollars, uh, the, you know, these positions a year ahead of the stock market um, gives a good leading indicator. I, that just reminds me of another one that I was looking at on your site, uh, which was, you know, shifting oil ahead or uh, 10 years uh, to look at the, the stock market. And uh, that's that's another fascinating one. That, yeah. Where did, and where did that come from? Well, I was doing research in oil prices and I thought, well, I want to see what the long-term trend is in oil prices. So I got all the data I could find. Uh, the old foundation for the study of cycles got a whole bunch of different data on prices of everything and anything they could think of. So they had oil prices back to 1890, which there wasn't very much of an oil market back then, but there was some and there was, there was pricing. And, and so I got that and I looked at it on chart. I thought, hey, that looks familiar. I know that plot. That's exactly like the plot of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. I thought, well, because... We see it all the time that oil prices and stock prices move together. So sure. I put the two of them on the same chart, and it didn't look quite right. They didn't quite align up. I thought, well, what's wrong with this? And so I played around with the alignment a little bit, and I found that if I shifted forward the oil price plot by 10 years on the chart, like if you had, a, if you had two charts on, on a sheets of acetate and you slid them on your desk forward and aft, then you could, you could move around the alignment. We can do that mathematically in charting programs uh, much easier than printing out acetate. But when you see it on a chart, you see that oil prices and their movements tend to show up again 10 years later in stock price movements. And it's fascinating. Yeah, it really is. I mean, that's another one I looked at, and I go, "Wow, it really looks like it matches up, you know, really, really well." You know, but this isn't just a couple of examples. You have looked at, you know, atmospheric temperatures and interest rates, and you know, just a variety of things that most people would not think to to look at. I mean, where does this um, creativity and maybe you know, just openness, willingness to look at relationships? that seemingly should have no relationship. Where, where, does that, where does that come from? It comes from a couple of places. The first place is you have to be willing to accept that there are lead-lag relationships that exist in the world. 
Um, and in nature, there's predator-prey cycles. So if you get a bunch of rain and a bunch of grass grows, then a bunch of rabbits will, will eat all the grass and they'll have bigger litters of rabbits. And so then, because there's more rabbits, then more ocelots and cougars will be able to survive and not starve to death because they're eating all the rabbits. So sometime after you get a, a bunch of rain making the grass grow, you get a boom in rabbit production, and then you get a boom in cougar production, and that and then they overindulge on eating too many rabbits and then they, the cougars start to fall. And so there's this general predator prey cycle in lots of things in the, in, in the, in the way that nature works. And so you have to be willing to accept that something out there might have the answer that you're looking for and it might be useful to listen to. So once you accept that, then you can go looking for these things. The second thing that it comes from is I've looked at charts for a bunch of my life. And so in my head, I have a roadmap of what the stock market looks like. If you give me a two-year chart of the S&P 500 from any period in the last 100 years, I can probably tell you when it was, because I just know the pattern. And so when I see the pattern that I already know appearing somewhere else, then I can more readily recognize it and put it two together that somebody else who hadn't stared at charts for so many years wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily recognize. Yeah, so some of that's just being around the markets. I was, you know, um, I've mentioned this book a lot of times recently. It's the Jesse Livermore biography, um, not the, the old classic one, Reminiscences, but uh, they, a new one came out about a year ago called uh, Jesse Livermore Boy Plunger, and it's a much more detailed look at his career. And, uh, you know, I mean, he called himself just a pure tape reader, and that was just l- spending time around the markets and getting a feel for what markets are doing, even if you're not specifically looking at at charts. And so I think probably after looking at charts for as long as you have, you start to get a feel for patterns and prices and how they how they work together. But especially with some of these relationships, um, it just reminds me of, um, you know, like uh, chaos theory, right? And, you know, talk about a, a butterfly flaps its wings, you know, one side of the earth creates a hurricane on the other side of the planet or whatnot. There are relationships and we're finding out through the evolution of math that um, there are a lot of these uh, interactions that we would never imagine um, are, are really out there. But uh, Sure, and, and, and the problem that we run into when we think about the source of these answers is we get caught up in the human trap of wanting to know about cause and effect. Like, well, okay, they're related, but what's causing that to work? Well, I don't care about cause and effect if I can be satisfied that a relationship works well enough. I don't care about causation. I care about indication. Who has the answers and who can give them to me, and are they reliable enough answers that I can make use out of? That's what I care about. Yeah, yeah. But still, you know, I I, I come back to the fact that uh, most investors, you know, um, think a lot of this stuff is mumbo-jumbo. But, uh, you know, how do you – I guess how do you – you know, um, uh, respond to that or deal with, you know, the people who, I mean, obviously there are plenty of people who say technical analysis is, is bogus, you know, but there are a lot of people that think, you know, a lot of this stuff is, is just, you know, mumbo jumbo. How do I respond? I try to foster that. I want more people to think it's mumbo jumbo so that they won't all get behind it. If, if the whole world believed that my leading indicator was a great and truthful indicator, then they would all pile in and they would ruin the effect of it. So <laughs> I'm just fine with the whole world not you know, believing in it. And that reminds me of uh, the, the article that Buffett wrote back in the early 80s called, I think, The Super Investors of Graham and Dodsville. And he said, you know, we're happy to, you know, no matter how much we preach this process, People don't, you know, don't uh, adapt it. And I think maybe that's why he's preaching passive investing today is that, you know, he doesn't want to breed his own competition. Um, but uh, what do you think is um, the, uh, the thing that investors 
uh, you know, maybe the, the greatest mistake that investors make generally, time and time again? Uh, the biggest one is panicking out with everybody else and panicking in with everybody else. We're seeing that with Bitcoin this week. Uh, it's doubled in the last month because everybody's piling in and, and it's the hot new thing. And we've seen this before with tulips and tech stocks and, and oil prices back in 2008. We, it's it's a fundamental human condition that everybody wants to play the hot thing. And then when it's going south and they have to t- tell their wife that they got to sell the, the car because they just have lost a bunch of money in the stock market, they panic out at the bottom. And uh, we do this over and over because we're the human brain is wired to do it that way. And you know, and the panic buying in in Bitcoin lately has been pretty phenomenal to watch. You know, up ten, twelve percent a day. And um, where where did you learn that lesson, right? Because that seems like it's one of the first lessons that we all learn in the markets, or we should learn in the markets, is that you know, panic buying, panic selling. You never want to behave from a place of panic. Where did you? Where did you? Was there a mistake that you made, or a, a part in your career where you learned? That, well, that didn't work so well. It's usually better to learn from other people's mistakes. That yes, yes. <laughs> it's tough. Um, the, the market has, of course, if you've been trading for more than a month, you've made a mistake somewhere along the way, and everybody does. And so you try to learn to not lose very much on your mistakes and, and uh, make more on your winners and try to, you try, always try to keep the mistakes to a minimum, but you can't keep them down to zero. Um, so... It's generally I I do better when I have an idea from my leading indications what's supposed to happen, and then I turn to my coincident indicators and see well what is happening and are the, those two in agreement, and uh, then I can trade with greater confidence and tra- greater surety and greater leverage if I, everything's going my way. When it's not going my way and I'm having to dance around because my leading indicators can be wrong sometimes, uh, or they they can be wrong for brief periods of a day or two or, or for a month or two, I got to figure out, okay, what is happening uh, and watch them, put them, maybe put them on the back burner, watch for when they start working again. Uh, that Euro dollar commitment to traders data, that that's not quite the holy grail, failed completely during QE3 because the market really wasn't expecting QE3. It wasn't a market liquidity phenomenon. It was a Fed putting its thumb on the scale in ways that those bankers where they were trading a year before couldn't have modeled and, and it didn't work so I had to grapple with that and that was that was tough because the two years prior 11, 2011 and 12 were great years for me because that it was working perfectly so that was a time when the euro dollar futures the traders were, were uh, um, selling off positions and anticipating a obviously or anticipating less liquidity and then the Fed came in and provided massive liquidity. Is that, That's is that very kind of, true. Yeah. The decline that they were forecasting did not happen. So now you might take the position that, well, the good for the Fed, they printed over a decline that was going to ruin a lot of people and, and that's what they should do. I try not to pass judgments like that. Uh, I'd much rather have the Fed do what it's supposed to do instead of monkeying around with my indicators. Right, right. Well, you know, maybe they're also watching that indicator and they said, whoa, look at the euro dollars contracts. We got we to gotta inject some liquidity here. I, I don't have any Fed officials <laughs> or subscribers that I know of. Okay, okay. Um, well, I, you know, I, 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 Tom, I really appreciate you doing this. Um, this is just a fantastic opportunity for, for me to share uh, – your views, I, you know, I think very highly of your process, and, and I really want to encourage my entire audience to go check out mcoscillator.com. Uh, the Learning Center on the website is fantastic, and you have a breadth of knowledge there um, that's just uh, a, a rare resource. 
So yeah, people really, people ask when I'm going to write a book, and I really have in that learning center. Uh, you can sign up for free to get our free weekly chart and focus email sent to you, no strings attached. We don't ever send you ads or spam or anything like that. It's just a way to get more people acquainted with their indicators. Been writing that since I think 2009, and so effectively, I've been writing a book in serial form all all that time. And all those articles are still published in the in the archives there. And go take a look. Yeah, that's a fantastic resource. So. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Jesse. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors in the Art of Worldly Wisdom. Uh, you can follow Tom on Twitter at McClellanOSC. Um, and if you're not already following me, I'm at Jesse Felder. And for notes and links related to this episode, visit thefelderreport.com. I'll put up a bunch of stuff related to this episode, including links to a lot of the indicators that Tom was talking about. I want to thank everyone for listening. If you're enjoying these episodes, please do me a favor and leave a review on iTunes. Until next time, buy low, sell high. Keeps him out of the abyss.